Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting, thrilling episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host of the Facebook Radio and the voice for being a mind, but I'm still your host. Today, we have a returning guest plus a new guest. First of all, I'd like to welcome back Mishko Hebri. How are you doing, Mishko? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again. Good. Good to have you. This will be a rather uh, quick conversation, so they say, right? Womp, <laughs> Thank you. Ooh. And then uh, also, we are welcoming a new guest, Mr. Jack Harrington. How are you doing, Jack? I'm great. How are you? Fabulous. Fabulous. Nice to have you. So before we get going into uh, our panelists and our subject, why don't you give us a little background on yourself, such as who you are, why you're famous, why people should give you money, etc. Uh, should I go first or is Jack going first? Oh, everybody knows you, Mishko. We just want to hear about Jack. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm Jack Harrington. I'm a React YouTuber. And uh, yeah, do, I'm doing content full-time now. And so that, I guess, is... I don't know if I'm famous. That's why. But I am actually on another podcast that's on this particular network, uh, React Roundup. So you can go check that out or my YouTube channel. And yeah, here all right. Yeah, blue, all cool blue things Blue collar coder, right? Right, the blue collar coder. Exactly. Today is blue, blue shirt today. coder. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got, it's got a blue collar. Right. A little blue and white. Actually, um, Mishko, we'll come back for those who might not be aware of your ever-increasing fame. Why don't you give us a little uh, background on YouTube? Yeah, so hi, I'm Mishko. I, I guess I'm famous because of this thing called AngularJS and then Angular. And now we're working on a new framework called Quick and I'm currently a CTO of Builder.io. Builder.io is a headless visual CMS. The headless part means it's running on your infrastructure and visual means it's a drag and drop editor that you can have using your own components that you build using your own framework, whether it's you know React, Angular, Vue, or Quick. I All love right. that explanation because yeah. often when I hear the terms headless and visual together, it kind of throws me off, but you gave an excellent explanation of how these two can work together. And before we get into that, let's welcome our panelists. Uh, surprisingly quiet until now, AJ O'Neill. How are you doing, AJ? <laughs> I'm not going to dignify that. <laughs> yo, 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 everybody. What's happening? Coming at you live from freaking 95 degrees. Where? <clears throat> uh, uh, it's 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 getting hot. No, we're in, we're in the U.S. has ninety five degrees right now. I'm just curious. It's it it's Texas? Utah. Oh, Utah. oh, okay. Utah, Utah Valley. Uh, the the whole valley is is heating up. I think today's high today's high is predicted to be ninety three. Woohoo! Whoa, that's that's more than Tel Aviv. But in the sh well, it was crazy because we had a super long. Winter. Winter lasted until about three weeks ago. And then all of a sudden, it was, no, that's not true. Sorry. We had a really long spring. We had a really late winter and a really long spring. And spring, summer started about three weeks ago. And it just got, it just got hot. It went from like months of pleasant weather, which is incredibly unusual, to just boom, burning hot. There you go. And right. uh, my AC can't keep up with it in the shed. And uh, coming at us live from Tel Aviv is Dan Sh Dan Shapir. How are you doing, Dan? Yeah, I'm doing fine. It's it's not as hot as Utah. <laughs> Surprisingly, that's a first. Yeah, no, it's it's a nice eighty something degrees here in the evening. You know, it's on the warm side, but you know, I'm okay with it, and I've got the AC running, so all's good. Good. All right. So since we last spoke with Mishko. Quick has had a 1.0 release. Uh, let's see. 
Sorry, I forgot about the studio audience too. So we're here to talk about what has been going on quick since the last episode with 1.0 and any other topics we might rabbit trail into. So Mishko, take it away. Yeah, so uh, 1.0 was in early May, and we're super excited about it. To us, 1.0 means that the uh, API with Quick and Quick City are stable. We're not planning to change it. And certainly, we're going to be adding new things, but it's all going to be backwards compatible. And so, yeah, we're super excited because uh, it means the uh, the world can start using us in production, and we're supporting them. Uh, I think since 1.0, we had had some cool set of features that came out. Uh, one of them is the the image optimization. We had image optimization before, but like this is a whole new level of image optimization. And we integrated one of the philosophy we have with Quick is that we want to be, uh, you know, the performance framework without the developer having to jump through any kind of hoops. So kind of out of the box, just do the right, easy thing. The easy thing is the performance thing. And one area where frameworks typically don't have an opinion on is CLS, right? Cumulative layout shift, because that's really a, a problem with styling rather than a problem with the framework. But yes. with Quick, we now <clears throat> hook into the uh, Chrome dev and we, we collect information and we automatically tell you that your code might have a CLS issue. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's even a button to push, like it comes up in the red box and says like, hey, this thing shifted on page load. Like, did you intend this? You might wow, want to look at. Oh, that's yeah. And I mean, okay. And and in the corner, this. if it's an image, if it's an image, then we say like, hey, it's an image. So it looks like you forgot to do width or height or something like that. And there's a button that says auto fix, and we go and change the source code as well. Wow, that's really cool. Nice. That's yeah. really nice. Right. You can do the same thing for custom fonts. Yeah, uh, I think we're doing looking into custom fonts right now. Um, and also, of course, we integrated Panda CS, CSS. Mm-hmm. And I started using it. I absolutely love it. It's like Emotion, but without kind of the, some of the drawbacks that Emotion has with the server-side rendering. So when you say integrated it, what does that mean? Does that mean like it's now you have to use Panda or? No, it's, it's, you could use whatever CSS technology oh, you okay. want, but now it's integrated in. So one of the choices you have, you can use Tailwind, you can use Post-CSS, you can use Vanilla Extract. Now we have an additional one called Panda, uh, and it's a um, uh, atomic CSS-based system. So it's kind of like Tailwind in that sense, uh, but it doesn't have the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for? The, the thing that makes Tailwind controversial, right? The thing that... Oh, the bloat of like the other classes yes. and, and your, yes, yes, and your yes. class name? Yeah. Uh, the controversial part is not included in, inside of that. <laughs> so, so I was actually not so familiar with Panda CSS before you mentioned it to me. Uh, you know, when we last spoke. So, uh, can you maybe? And I'm assuming that if it's true for me, it's also probably true for for some of our listeners. So, even though we are here to talk about Quick, can you tell us a little bit about Panda CSS and and why is it you know worthwhile to use this technology? What's interesting about it? Yeah, so so first of all, let me just like preface it with I am not a styling expert, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Who just is? Kind of <laughs> just leave a room, that's it. <laughs> I can barely center a text, okay? <laughs> Nobody. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, hold on. So horizontally, you know, that's easy, but vertically. <laughs> Nobody can center text vertically. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so, so uh, okay. So what's cool about Panda CSS? I think, I think CSS has gone through a couple of iterations. And I think Emotion.js 
or emotion CSS. I don't know what the proper name is. I think it became popular because it's it's the styling inside of your code. And I think there is something to be said for like, I am coding, I made my div, and now I need to style it. And I can just do it in line. I don't have to make a separate file and then figure out like, what do I name the file? And like, it just breaks the flow, right? Like if you want to center something, to go through like making a new CSS file and then importing it into it and then referring to it and giving a name, it's just too much work. So there is something to be said for this niceness of just like inlining the styling directly into your into your source code. And I think that's the reason why Emotion has become so popular. I think if I can interject, I think there's like a kind of a disconnect or an or um, kind of a impedance like mismatch uh, between developers and designers where developers have been trained to look at things like locally and encapsulate things and componentize things whereas designers often looked at things like holistically and globally and across the entire scope of the page and css is originally more modeled to the designer outlook and and we developers keep struggling with that. Like, how do I put my rules specifically on the component? How I, do I encapsulate my layout and stuff like that? And I, and I think this is like a recurring issue. And that's kind of the reason I think for all of, at the end of the day, there are other technical reasons, but at the end of the day, it seems to me that that's the primary motivation for a lot of these uh, utilities built on top of CSS. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to just add to it is that um, there are kind of like two ways to think about styling, right? There is this atomic CSS, and then there's the classical way of doing CSS. The classical way is like you have a you know element and you give it a name through a, a class name, and then in, inside of the class name you add a bunch of things that what it is. And so when you have a design system, it's very common that everybody has the same padding, padding ten, padding ten, padding ten, right? But normally you re- keep repeating that everywhere in all your styles, right? Whereas Atomic CSS says, well, how about we break this up and we basically say that, hey, the padding 10 is going to be just one style and then, you know, margin might be another style or, you know, centering could be another style and then you just combine those styles, kind of what Tailwind does, right? If you think about it, Tailwind is Atomic CSS because you're saying like, I want padding, I want margin, I want all these things, but it bloats your, your classes, right? So, what Panda is, is kind of a mixture of both. Like it's atomic like Tailwind, but it's inlined like Emotion. And I think putting those two together is kind of a, makes it for a really nice combination. And I really enjoy using it. And, and I think that Manu recently added some nice integration between you and, and Panda, I seem to recall. Kind of experimental. Yeah, kind of experimental, but, but really cool. That's right. And, and so the, the kind of the niceness of atomic CSS is that the amount of CSS kind of grows, but it kind of reaches a plateau no matter how big your app gets, right? There's like a mm-hmm. plateau that you reach because you've already, you know, specified the padding once, you specified the margin and you already have the, uh, the so on. And so it, it, it's a limited in, in kind of in scope. And does it also kind of avoid the problem of adding rules that you are can ne- then never remove because you don't know what you might break? 
Uh, right. So, so Pandas CSS is a compile time thing. So emotion is runtime, right? Like as the code is running, it's generating the styles. And that creates problems for you know, server-side rendering and things of that sort. And adding and removing the rules can cause styling reflows. Um, whereas Pandas CSS basically executes all these things uh, statically ahead of time during a compilation and sets up all the styles ahead of time. And then the only thing you're doing is just uh, kind of a tailwind between. So think of it like, it's like tailwind in terms of the runtime, but it's like emotion in terms of the syntax. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I'm excited. I like it. I'm really enjoying it. I'm going to use quick to do it. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So what else is new on quick? Uh, Let's see. We talked about the... um, the, the, the styling. Uh, one of the things I started working on, we started this thing called Quick Labs. And Quick Labs is basically our area where we want to experiment with things, right? Once you reach 1.0, it kind of makes it difficult to experiment because it's like, well, we can't break this, but at the same time, we want to try different things. And so where do you put the things that you want to try? And so for that, we created a brand new package called Quick Labs. And the idea is that over there inside Quick Labs, we can experiment, we'll break things, you know, we'll you know, we're not get, making any sort of guarantees, but we're also saying like this is not production ready. This is just for us to kind of try and get feedback on. And then at some point, you know, it will graduate from Quick Labs into the actual uh, production code base. Or not. So we have two things. Or not. Or not. It could be dead end, right? And so we have two things going on in there right now. Uh, one is uh, the type uh, route, uh, strongly typed routes. Mm. Oh, goal, Ooh, yeah, yeah. The goal I would like to have is that when you make links or you know uh, URLs or anything of that sort, like I want the TypeScript to scream at you and be like, "That's not a thing that points to anything, right?" But not just about URLs, but also query parameters, kind of like uh, React Router from Tenstack. Yeah, we actually had Tanner Lindsay on the show a couple of episodes back, talking about it and explaining. One, the benefits of, of type routing. So if our listeners are interested, you know, they should go back and listen for sure. So I think what he's trying to do, I, he's, he's, I think he's totally on the right track. and I, I really support his work. Uh, so we want to have the same kind of an idea uh, within Quick. Um, there are reasons why we can't just use a 10 stack. I would love to be able to just use it, um, but it doesn't like decompose into the, the quickness of lazy loading, etc. Like the 10 stack kind of implies that it's running client-side rendered rather than this, this uh, you know, server client metaphor that Quick has. Um, and so we want to be able to do all of these things inside of it. So that's one, one Quick Labs project. So just to clarify, in case that does graduate, does that mean that type routing will become the de facto standard routing mechanism for Quick slash Quick City? Yeah, going forward, we would, we would add that, yeah. Cool. That's exactly the idea. I mean, uh, I've always been a big proponent of TypeScript. I think TypeScript is great. Mm. A uh, big fan of it, right? I think uh, Angular helped. I'm not saying we, we should take a lot of credit, but like we, we did a little bit to help Angular. <laughs> <that before>. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Which by adding it into Angular uh, early on before it was uh, that popular. Yeah, everybody was kind of surprised that like the big project that implemented Microsoft's TypeScript was Google's Angular kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it was totally the right thing to do. Like in retrospect, it was it was absolutely right. Um, oh yeah, not not was, implement yeah. Uh, not implement Angular in Dart. <laughs> oh. Why did you have to go I there? Like Dart. <laughs> but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, entirety is fine as a language. It's, <laughs> no language. Not what the, yeah. yeah, that's not... Anyways, moving on. <laughs> so the other thing in Quick Labs, which I'm super excited about right now, is what we call insights. And insight is, is stuff that we have talked about for a while that we wanted to do, but now it's actually in there. And the idea of insights is that as you're using the application, we collect statistical information about which symbols are getting loaded when, and we send it back to some database. And then inside of the database, we can analyze it and basically tell you like, what are the ideal bundles? You know, how should you set up your bundles so that um, it, you, you would have the you know, least amount of code being shipped to the client, but also don't have any latency delay for the end user? And uh, the insights will give you not just that, but also tell the system like which components even make it to the client, which components never make it to the client. Right? So like, there's kind of a lot of benefits to it. And so that project is underway uh, and I'm super excited. We have all kinds of visualizations that show off, um, you know, how uh, the, the, the histograms show off the different latency of different symbols, and then correlation matrices that like say like, oh, it looks like whenever this symbol shows up, also these other symbols also come up, and so tricks like that. Is that actually out there? I mean, like, I, can I try this today? Because that sounds fascinating. Yeah, it, it's inside of Quick Labs. You can certainly try Heck it. Yeah, I can send you okay. some links. I can send you some links uh, to yeah, show please. you. Um, what the kind of the UI kind of looks like. Uh, the UI is not very pretty right now because I said I, I don't know styling. <laughs> ah, it's a special, huh? Okay. Well, so I, I really I mean, like the it. idea. I like run my EDE tests mm. against the app, you know, basically, and then at the end, like, oh look, okay, we didn't need that, we didn't need that. Yeah. So, but not just E to E, but also like production as well. Like Ooh, you could just run production right. application. Yeah. And so, since we're already collecting this, we're also going to collect any kind of errors that happen on a server uh, on a client and ship it to the server as well. And the idea is that like, you know, there's one question you can be like, what's the set of bundles? There's a separate question you can have, which is like, what are, um, in which order should these bundles be actually downloaded, right? Because maybe this first bundle contains the buy button and you kind of want to make, make sure that that thing works first. Whereas these other things are, you know, less important. And so you can mix and match all of this information and, and, and provide this, to uh, to the to the application that's running, and so you can get a much better uh, output, right? Yeah, slicing and dicing bundles has always been kind of challenging. Coming up with the ideal bundle size because if the bundle is too small, you're losing out on compression. Uh, on the other hand, if the bundles are too big, you're potentially losing out on on cache invalidations. There, there are all sorts of you know, challenges with coming up with ideal bundle size. So if you can like optimize both the bundle sizes, what actually gets bundled together, the order in which things get downloaded, and again, offload that effort off of the developers, make it kind of something that developers get, you know, free of charge, as it were, then yeah, that's definitely a very good thing. I'm actually kind of, I, I want to talk to him about the bundle thing, because... I thought the whole point of Quick was that you didn't actually run bundles or didn't download bundles until you needed them. So, so this this is something that I had been I, I've been wondering about for years. It seems like we create all this sophistry for exactly the audience that shouldn't be dealing with it. That the people that are doing web devs should not be doing the. Uh, this is more of a infrastructure thing in in my mind. We should have web servers. This should just be standard in web servers that there's some sort of statistical analysis that it does a genetic algorithm 
to serve to a, a few different browsers, see what the actual use looks like, store that in a tiny amount of RAM, write it out to a cache file. And then when you update the page, when any of the resources change, just break the caches and then start with a best guess again. So I'll, I'll make a comment about this because something like three years ago, we actually had Yoav Weiss from Google, you know, who works on like infrastructure things at Google, uh, talking about web bundles, as I recall. And there was like this sort of a push to make this sort of a thing part of the actual infrastructure. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. It couldn't happen. There are all sorts of issues. You know, you can't even get everything from all the CDN providers yet. They don't all support, you know, like uh, prioritization properly and stuff like that. And you're talking about way more sophisticated things. Um, there are some ad- there are some advances in the infrastructure. For example, like sharing the compression dictionary means that we'll get much better compression with smaller bundles going forward. So we won't have to bundle as much. So so the, the platform is moving forward, but obviously it's moving forward at a slower pace than you know people like Quick and Mishko can move can move at. I, I want to add to it a little bit, which is that you know there's a lot of things you can do in terms of optimizing things in general, but your life of optimiz- optimization is going to be much much easier if the developer is in on it. What I mean by that is like. If the developer does things to help you along, then your life just gets tremendously simpler, right? And so I think the philosophy that Quick has is, is that like out of the box, we want to make sure that the developer, we set up a set of rules that force the developer to write the code in such a way so that we have all these options for optimization, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is the kind of a, the big difference with, with existing approaches is that existing approaches basically say like, um, you know, we will somehow magically optimize later. We don't know how to be determined, <laughs> right? And of course, then afterwards, they're having a really hard time because like, it's, you know, the developer is not in on it, right? And so I think the big thing or the big innovation here in Quick is that like, we set out a set of rules and the developer doesn't really have to think about it in terms of like, oh, I need to do this because I have to whatever so that it can be optimized, right? These rules are just there and they have to follow them. Uh, and because of that, you know, later on you get benefits. Can you give an example of such a rule that you force developers to follow? Yeah, so uh, there's really, it comes down to, in my opinion, to, to, to three things. Uh, the most obvious rule is the dollar sign, right? The dollar sign is the uh, code extraction. Basically, it is a place where we can now do lazy loading. And with that lazy loading rule comes the fact that whatever we are going to lazy load will require to have serialization of the state, right? And so this dollar sign is that really, really, I don't know if I want to use the word strict, but there's this rule that is pervasive to the whole system and the developer has to be in on it. You know, every time they see a dollar sign, there are certain rules that they have to follow. But in return, what they get is they don't have to think about bundling. They don't have to think about lazy loading. They don't have to think about, you know, startup performance, et cetera. So I think it's a good trade-off. So again, can you give a rule that they need to follow with regard to the dollar sign? Oh, sorry. 
the, the, the rule would be like, uh, whatever your dollar sign usually uh, comes together with a closure. And the rule is that if it's a closure, then all of these things that closures capture, because closures capture variables outside of them, right? All of those right. things have to be serializable. That's the rule. What is not serializable? An ob- uh, a class would not be serialized. Functions. Right? Well, that, uh, functions are in quick, right? Because functions, as long as they're wrapped in the dollar sign, okay, oh, yeah. they can be serialized. Right. But yeah, right. just random one-off functions. That's random functions cannot be, but as long as you wrap the function in the dollar sure. sign, that becomes yeah, okay. serializable, right? Yeah. Uh, so another things would be like a stream, like a, a you know, web socket. Well, that's not serializable, right? But mm. many things are like, we go out of the way to kind of serialize everything. So we can serialize basic objects, a hash map, sets, promises. Uh, so most things are serializable. And and what happens if there's something in the closure which is not? You get like a compiler error or something like that? Yeah, so we have we have both a ESLint that tries to tell you immediately as part of the compilation by using the type information of TypeScript. The ESLint can basically say like, I don't think that's going to work because, you know, the, the type of that object that you're trying to serialize is not one of those types that we know how to handle. But there's also a runtime error that basically says, like, if you if you kind of skip over the TypeScript error by putting an any on it, so to speak, right, the, the runtime will kind of scream at you and be like, hey, I tried to serialize this thing. It didn't work. And just... And I think it's worthwhile to, again, to clarify to our listeners what we mean by serialization in this context. It means that something can be, usually start its life, life cycle on the server, and then at some point or another, make, you know, cross the network divide to the client and continue running there. That's the kind of thing, right? And so I I usually talk about it in terms of a unified execution model, right? That you don't have to think about where your application is executing. Like it starts its life on a server and then it transitions to executing on a client and it's all seamless. And you as a developer don't have to like, Think about it, right? Like I just build my app. It, the app is executing inside of my, you know, the constraints of the framework. And so I'm just building it as I normally would. And the fact that some of it executes on a server and some of it executes on a client, that's like that's an implementation detail of the framework, not something you have to worry about as a developer. I mean, I get it. you wrap it in the in the dollar and follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. There are rules, right? Every framework yeah. has a rule. Yeah. yeah. But but again, it's not just that. It's not just about isomorphic code. It's not just about the same code can run on the server or run on the client or run first on the server and then run on the client. It's about the state that you had when you ran on the server persisting as you run on the client. Yeah, so I think the way to talk about it is that you can create, instantiate a closure on a server, but execute it on the client. Right? An isomorphic code means like, oh, you have the same code that you can run on the server and run on the client. That's not a little bit exciting. I mean, it's exciting, but not super exciting. But the fact that you can allocate a closure on a server and then execute it on the client, that is kind of a mind work. Right? And the reason why this is important is because what you want is that as part of the server execution, you are allocating closures for the click listeners, right? Or for any kind of listeners in general. And so you want to allocate those closures as part of SSR, but then execute them on a client as part of an interaction. Which kind of gives me back to what, yeah, well, it kind of, kind of gives me back to where I was thinking right after you mentioned bundle optimization was, I mean, the whole point of Quick is to have like super small bundles. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very, it's the fine-grained updating thing that we saw in Solid combined with this resumability. And so I, you don't expect to have mega bundles in Quickland. Everything's going to be these tiny little things that are dynamically loaded whenever you hit a button or, or preloaded or whatever. So why, why any interest at all in bundle optimization? Uh, I think there's, uh, I, I think you'd, well, to really have a good idea of what bundles are needed to be run on a client versus server, you kind of have to observe the application actually running. You, sure. There's okay. heuristics you can do and kind of guess, but nothing beats the actual observation, right? I mean, the, the fundamental problem of uh, tree shakers today is that they have to assume that if a particular if branch is present, then it might be executed, right? Right. Right. Uh, sure, they can do tricks where they can look at it and like, oh, all of the variables inside of the if are global and they're constant, therefore I can make an assumption. But generally, that's not the case. So for example, you could have a, a third-party library that basically says, oh, if JPEG then run this path, if PNG run this path, right? But let's say your application doesn't have any JPEGs. It all, all PNGs all the way, right? That JPEG code is coming, whether you like it or not, because the tree shaker cannot remove it. It statically does not know that you don't have any JPEGs. Right. And and here's an industry inter, interesting architectural or implementation, I don't know at which level to put it, the distinction between what you guys are doing and what uh, the, the React guys with React Server Components uh, seem to be doing. That they are really intentionally trying to enforce a really clear separation between the server-only code and the client code, you know, with the whole user client and use server and having it in separate files and an import that you can put in that in intentionally breaks if you if you uh, uh, accidentally try to download to the client something that should only live on the server, or conversely, if you put uh, stateful hooks in server only components and, and so on and so forth, and you seem to be trying to avoid or trying to not make these kind of distinctions. Like I could, I believe, write all of the quick, an entire quick application if I really wanted to as a single file, more or, or, almost. Uh, or, or, uh, and so, I'm, so the question that becomes maybe there, yeah, why, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think, um, so, so obviously we believe, I mean, our opinion, you know, our point of view is that it's nice to be able to just throw everything in a single file and not having to think about it, right? There is a cost to asking the developer to separate things out. Um, but there's also a cost in like, you could accidentally like put a bunch of things together that you didn't intend to, right? And so these two things needed to be trade-off against each other. Uh, but in order to put everything into a single file, you need to have some kind of code extraction. Basically, at the end of the day, the answer is it has to be in a separate file, right? It cannot execute as a single file. So, so the fact that you enable the end user to put everything in a single file means that you have to have some kind of a step which separates things out, right? And so the, the React uh, approach is basically saying like, hey, since at the end of the day, we have to separate things out anyways, why don't we just force the developer to separate things out for us right, explicitly? 
But because we have this ability to do code extraction later on, uh, we actually uh, came a step further and said, actually, we actually think it's not worth for the developer to make these choices. Like, it's better if they don't have to think about it. So they can just put everything together and we will separate things out as needed. Now, it creates complexities such as the, the, the need to be then solved through the insights, right? Because you explicitly, uh, you know, you, in one world, you explicitly say what's client, what server. In here, we're like, well, we'll, we'll uh, you know, profile it, see how it runs. And based on that, we'll decide what's client, what's server. So, for example, let's say I'm using some sort, uh, you gave an example of using some sort of an image processing library inside the code. Uh, with the quick approach, it's there's a higher potential risk that you will accidentally import the or 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 access the library features from code that does need to go to the client and end up pulling the library to the client that's that's kind of what i'm reading and and your mechanisms are designed to say oh you know warn you that hey you're pulling down code that you might not want to pull down and even if you do want to pull it down We'll bundle it in such a way that it will either arrive much later or maybe not even arrive at all. I think it's a little bit more complicated because like on one side, yes, by putting things together, you're increasing the risk. But on the other side, because we have an automatic way of breaking things up, then that decreases the risk, right? And so like the question that becomes like, well, which one is it? Like, is, is the putting things together producing more risk than automatic breaking things up? I actually think that the automatic breaking things up actually uh, improves the risk, not decreases it. Because you could do the wrong thing in existing frameworks like React Server Components and you know Next.js, et cetera. Like, and people, there have been instances where people accidentally included oh, yeah. they weren't meant to, right? Oh, so this yeah, is not like a new problem. Oh yeah, for sure. I recall a project when I worked at Wix when it turned out that we accidentally downloaded three different versions of Moment.js into the client bundle. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, fun times. Uh, yeah, 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 and they never get. They never get. And here's the thing about that: they never get picked up, like on the PR, right? They always get picked up three months down the line when somebody goes, "Whoa, wait a second, our bundle is how big?" And then you know, then it's this whole thing of like trying to figure out when did it happen or what what's in there and all that. And so I love this idea of it's kind of a DevOpsy thing of like, hey, it's in your face all the time. It's like you know, you get these this update. It's like, hey, whoa, what you just did brought a lot of code in, yeah, by but, the way, but like, have, right now. But I do have you know. to ask about this. I mean, obviously, you can analyze the the user code within the context of, of the project that's being built in Quick, because as you said, it's there's like uh, an onus on, on the developer to put in the dollar signs and whatnot. But if I'm bringing... Yeah, but if I'm... Yeah, but if I'm bringing in a third-party library via NPM, what then? Well, that third-party library is referred to from a click handler or from some dollar sign somewhere, right? And so they indirectly get the benefit as well. So if you don't click the button that needs to use the Moment.js, whatever, then the Moment.js doesn't show up, right? It's only when you actually activate a piece of code that actually needs it, it's only then when the code kind of shows up. And so there is this kind of a trade-off, right? Like, Like on one side, by putting things together, it appears as if you're increasing the risk. But because there's automatic breakup that's happening underneath it, my argument is that the automatic breakup actually, in the end, produces a lower risk 
than if you had it. Yeah, but there's but there's still a risk that when I click the button, because that button for some reason used the function out of Moment.js, I'll end up pulling Moment.js when the user clicks the button. Absolutely. But isn't it better to uh, delay that? Oh, yeah. But on the other... Yeah, but on the other hand, there's a risk that I might not notice because my tests don't actually click the button or something. There will always be ways to to shoot yourself in the foot, right? (laughs) So maybe like a warning like, hey, you know, you need to notice that a certain bundle is, you know, maybe too large or something like that. So that's what kind of comes with the dollar sign, right? Like these are the implicit kind of rules and understanding, right? And that's why we chose to make the dollar sign so explicit because once you use Quick, uh, you know, for building the real applications, you kind of understand like, oh, this dollar sign has these set of rules, but also these set of implications. Uh, and and it's it's nice when it's explicit. When I'm kind of telling you as a as a as a you know, you developer, you're basically being told like, magic's happening here. Uh, it's a well-defined box, right? It's not like complicated magic. It's a well-defined box of what's happening in here. But you have to be aware that this is what's happening. There's another topic that I wanted to bring up, which we kind of touched on before we started recording. Uh, and we said we might want to talk about, which is you, you, you mentioned Quick and Quick City. So I, I think that for some of our listeners, at least, the distinction between these two might not be clear. So can you kind of explain, like, do I need, do I have to use Quick City if I use Quick or can I use Quick without Quick City? Where does one end and the other begin? Why is this distinction even being made? So, uh, yeah, there are two things. So Quick City is the meta framework, whereas Quick is the framework, right? And the way I think about it is Quick is basically everything that goes with or inside of the component dollar sign, right? So when I'm declaring my components, the JSX, the use methods, et cetera, all of those things really fundamentally are the quick, uh, quick, not quick city. And if you think about it, the quick can run as a regular client-side application, right? A pure CSR, right? Quick has that ability. Like we always tout its SSR capabilities, but there's nothing stopping you from using it as a regular a good old uh, client-side rendered application. So that's what Quick is. Quick City then deals with things related to the server. So whether it's fetching data, whether it's routing at the server level, um, or doing things as are like RPCs. So the routing, so the routing is part of Quick City. Yeah, the routing is part of Quick City, but it has this interesting property that it can actually run both places. It can run either on the Quick City side or it can run in the client as well. So it's kind of a both. So, so the whole MPA versus SPA kind of gets really muddy. So, so here's the thing, though. Uh, you know, I, I recently did um, a, a conference talk where I look, where I compared the performance of various frameworks, or more accurately the likelihood that you'll build a performant website using any of the uh, any of the frameworks so i basically looked at the ratios of websites built having good performance built using any of of the frameworks and when i looked at meta frameworks i actually included quick as it were as a meta framework because from my perspective it's highly unlikely then anybody will decide to actually use Quick and not use it with the 
uh, SSR capabilities that are associated with it. Uh, I'm so I, so for so theoretically, you know, there are a lot of organizations using React without any meta framework. Currently, only approximately like thirty, some like thirteen percent of all React uh, websites out there actually use some official quote unquote uh, meta framework. Most of them are just maybe client-side rendered or whatever. Uh, there's a good question whether this will persist going forward, as it seems that uh, Next.js is the future of React. But, uh, but uh, that's the situation right now. And, from, and, and therefore, that's why I kind of question the, the need for this distinction in the context of Quick, because I'm asking myself, you know, why would I ever use Quick without QuickSync? Well, okay. I'll give you an example. Can I defend a little bit, actually? Yeah, I mean, there's solid and there's solid start, which is very similar. There is, you know, Vue has its, you know, Vue, and then it's, I think it's got a, there's a router that is independent. Nux. And, Vue and yeah, Nux. Yeah, 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 yeah. So everyone has this kind of thing. Yeah, but, for different, that but for different reasons, though, by the way. Uh, we can, you know... And anyway, I'm kind of, you know, we're pulling the discussion in a different direction. We want to focus on quick. What if what if we didn't make a distinction? What if we put both things together? And let's say then you want to use Quick to build a um, something that's purely client side rendered, such as a, a Chrome extension. Then yeah. what? What do you do with Quick City? Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. So you need to basically have a way of not shipping Quick City because in this particular context, it might be that uh, y- y- there is no server. Right, like if it's a Chrome extension or Chrome DevTools extension, there is no server, and so what would you do then? <laughs> uh, we actually interview. It recently came out an episode where we interviewed uh, Kyle Simpson, Getify, uh, talking about the uh, the company is currently working at Socket Supply. The reason that I'm bringing it up is they're doing a really interesting peer to peer thing where there are no servers. You know, it's all clients talking to each other without any servers. It's all peer to peer. So yeah, I guess in that context, uh, it makes in the context of something like that, or like you said, Chrome extensions, it makes uh, a lot of sense. But it still seems to me like that the, the sweet spot, the, the where you where where you guys are mostly promoting Quick, I think, is it's the it's the benefit of when it is used with a server. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's the biggest benefit, yes. So, Mishko, let me ask you, one of the examples that I think of when you talk about separation of client-side versus server-side is uh, an app, say, that's just an administrative app. You don't give a rip about server-side rendering or SEO because it's behind a login. Um, You know, I've been working on one myself here for the past few months. Um, And so, is that something that, you know, based on what Dan was just describing about the whole uh, reason for quick, or a lot of it, unless I'm misunderstanding, is to have that synchronization and, and quickness, no pun intended, between, <laughs> actually, I did intend it. Um, they between, intended it when they came up with and resuma- And resu- <laughs> resumability between the back end and the front end. Is that even a valid use case for something like quick, where you only need the client-side rendering? And if so, why? How many times have you had this, this thing where there's somebody in your company sends you a link to clearly something that is internal to the company, right? Like a uh, 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 customer management system or something like that, right? And then you look at that link and you go like, do I want to click on that? Because I know clicking on it is going to give 10, 10 seconds of my life 
to me waiting for the spinner for the app to come, <laughs> right? And so even in internally inside of the organization where there is no benefit to SEO or any of that stuff, wouldn't it be nicer if the apps just came up faster? Right? Like, yeah, we amortize the cost of the fact that Gmail is super slow to come up over the fact that it runs the whole day. But what if it would be instant come up? What if I don't have to keep the window open because the cost of navigating back to Gmail is essentially the same cost as opening up a Google search? Like, you don't keep Google search open, right? Because there's nothing to amortize. There is no cost to closing the Google search and then opening in a new tab whenever you feel like. Whereas you keep Gmail open primarily because there is a cost to it. And I'll add to that, that uh, very often, you know, the, the fact that these kind of apps have really poor performance is justified by the fact that uh, it's not worth the effort. Uh, but if there is no effort, if you get the good performance for quote-unquote free, then everybody wins. And, and this is kind of the big thing that Quick is trying to kind of get across is that as a developer, you should be focusing on building the behavior of the app, not worrying about like how to make it performant, right? To, to us, the basic philosophy of Quick is to basically say that performance is not your problem. It is our problem. We are taking it on, right? And that is not how it is in other frameworks. If you think about how other frameworks have is they have APIs to make your code faster, right? You build your app and then there are best practices or you know whatever you do to kind of improve the performance, make it go fast, right? And our argument is like, that's not a thing that should exist. Well, you're not alone. You know, one of the things I'm a big proponent of is inertia, uh, JS, and that does a lot of what you describe. It handles the browser communication between your chosen front end and your back end, and it's smoking fast. I've been amazed about how fast it is. And I didn't have to do anything. You know, all I do is I write my back end code, I write my front end code, inertia handles, uh, the browser interaction between the front and the act and hijacking the post request and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it's that's another similar tool, you know, to my mind that that does the same thing that you're talking about. Obviously, there there's some different tools and, and things that you're using, but the end result is still the same. Yeah, I think we're in this world right now where if the website is slow, we blame the developer. We're like, oh, it's their fault. They messed up, right? But I think that's the wrong world. I think we should be I in the agree. world when the website is slow. We should be like, no, the tooling messed up. The tooling allowed developer to end up in the wrong place. I'm yeah, reading, absolutely. Yeah, I'm reading a great book right now called uh, Design of Everyday Things. Right? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. And and in the book, like the guy makes an excellent point, which is like... Oh, doors, lots the, and lots of doors. <laughs> doors too. But, you know, like when there's an airplane crash, like you can look at it as like, oh, human error. Like, yeah, but like, why did the system crash? Because humans are predictably error for error prone, right? So like, why did you design a system so that like a single human error like caused the crash? Hmm. Well, there's a whole rabbit trail we could go down considering I was just reading a report uh, of a well-known crash of a, in Hawaii that happened a few years ago. About, it was on Hacker News about uh, a cargo plane that had crashed. And the whole point of the report was how the human interactions prior to the flight and during the flight was what caused it. There were processes, there were everything's in place. They didn't follow them. So, you know, whether it was checklists, whether it was trusting the other person too much, you know, and not relying on the stuff that was in place. So that might be sort of a rabbit trail. But to your point, yes, a lot of times you blame the, uh, 
the, the person. Oh, they screwed up. Somebody did something wrong. But at the same time, a lot of times you're saddled by the infrastructure. You know, with browsers, what are we saddled with? We're saddled with the post request and how it works and the interaction and all the caching and things you have to develop, you know, rely on if you're doing server-side rendering stuff, which is what you're trying to address. And so we're constantly coming up with tools to overcome the infrastructure and the tools we have in place, partially because if you look at the time that these tools were developed, they had a very small thing uh, goal in mind. We want to make documents available on the web. They didn't give a rat's patootie about performance because a lot of that wasn't an issue at the time. And so because of the way things were initially developed and because of all the technical debt you have on relying on those things for so many years, now you're developing tools to try to overcome it. Whereas, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? If we were to look back at this point and say, okay, if I'm starting over with the World Wide Web and Tim Berners-Lee is still, you know, creating the web browser or, or you know, Brandon's still doing JavaScript, whatever, we would do it completely different. Yeah. Now we you have would... technologies that would allow us to do things much quicker and much easier and faster. So here's the thing. I remember a, a talk from a long time ago by Ellen Kay, the amazing Ellen Kay. And if you guys don't know who that is, you know, you should, or, or our listeners, you should immediately, like, at the end of this podcast, drop everything and check out the stuff that he's done over the years. Creator of Smalltalk, just, just, just to start. He basically invented object, the concept of object-oriented programming. Um, and he was really annoyed with the web as an application platform. And I remember from something like 15 years ago, he tried to propose an alternative web, uh, an alternative app, uh, uh, distributed application development platform. Uh, and he showed how much more amazing it was and so on and so forth. But, you know, what are we using today? We're using the web, not the amazing thing that LNK design, envisioned and designed. So, you know, in retrospect, going back, maybe Tim Berners-Lee and Brendan Eich would have built something else, but maybe that thing would have failed. Um, so, you know, uh, we've got what we've got. But going to the concept of performance, of getting performance for, again, for quote-unquote free out of the framework or the platform, we've been primarily focusing about performance as in startup performance or loading performance. What about execution performance? Is that something where Quick is providing value as well when compared to frameworks such as, I don't know, like React or, or, or Vue? I think so. I, I think so as well. I think the, the framework that kind of showed the way here is SolidJS, right? SolidJS with signals basically showed like, hey, we can do a lot better in terms of rendering uh, once the application is running. And in that sense, uh, uh, Quick also uses signals. Now, there are the differences where I would always jokingly say, and Brian Kainado, Kainado loves it, that basically I say, like, solid is basically the absolute extreme. If you take signals to this absolute extreme, you get solid, right? And so in that sense, I think SolidJS will continue to be one of the fastest frameworks out there in terms of runtime performance, right? But I want to point out that people have successfully been building apps even with not-so-performant frameworks, and it's fine. They can kind of pull it off. It just requires a lot of work, right? Um, 
And so while I think uh, runtime performance is super important, and I would I think with Quick, you maybe get like 95% to that of solid, but you don't get as much as solid. The thing that Quick has going for it is the startup performance, right? The bundling, dealing, et cetera. Because solid, while it may perform really well once it's up and running, still has the same problems of the startup performance, getting all the bundles downloaded, uh, you know, no easy way to do code splitting, all of those things, right? So there's a separate kind of a category of and so there's also a trade-off that you have is like the more um, fine-grained you make the reactivity, the more data you have to serialize, and which makes it harder to do reasonability, right? And so like between these trade-offs, we are actually like, obviously because it's our baby, but like we feel like we're in a very good spot where we make a, made a good trade-off between, hey, we have reasonability and therefore we don't need all that stuff. We can lazy load everything we want. But at the same time, we're also pretty darn close to what Solid is in terms of signals and updating the UI. So we've had Ryan Cognato on the show talking uh, several times about uh, fine-grained reactivity and signals. So I, I encourage our listeners to check that out if they're interested in the topic. But just to give a really brief overview, basically the, the, the main contrast here is between is today is between systems like solid or like quick, which use the concept of fine-grained reactivity, which means that when a particular value changes, uh, that value triggers a mutation, that change triggers a mutation of the relevant part of the DOM. Uh, and and, and, and compare, contrast that with systems like React, which take a more immutable type of an approach where you generate the entire state that you want as a virtual DOM hand it over to the framework, and the framework reconciles the difference. That's like the main distinction here, right? And, and, you're, and you're kind of, quote-unquote, forced into using fine-grained reactivity because it's kind of tied to the way in which you deliver down the code, that you, you only deliver the code that is needed to perform the mutation that needs to happen. Yeah, so you're forced down this route because... Um, let, let's take an, React as an example. Let's take a classical example where you have a buy button and a shopping cart. And a buy button and a shopping cart are far apart in terms of the DOM, right? And so the least, uh, the, the, there's some parent that has both of these two, and this parent is pretty close to root. And so that's the parent where you store your state of what the current shopping cart state is, yeah. right? And so now the problem becomes that if you mutate the shopping cart, if the buy button mutates the shopping cart, then the way it works in React is that you start with the component where the state is declared, which is pretty close to the root, and you start re-rendering everything. Which means like reasonability, you, you, you fought all of this effort to make sure that you don't download the JavaScript code and you went through all these hoops to kind of make sure that this doesn't have to eagerly execute. And the first time you click a button, bam, your whole application has to show up. <laughs> Because you have to re-render the whole thing, right? And so the fine-grained reactivity is the escape hatch for this, right? It basically says, actually, you don't need to re-render all this stuff because fine-grained reactivity allows you to connect the, the buy button directly to either the shopping cart or directly to the shopping cart's DOM elements, right? And so if you make that connection that's like so fine-grained, then you can skip over all of the code that, you, that is, lives in between. And that's the point. It's like, you're not forced to it, but if you don't do it, then you are very quickly in the world of hurt, right? <laughs> and yeah. so so it's not like it's a re- hard requirement, but it's a pretty good idea not to go there. But just to give a balanced viewpoint, there are 
people who prefer the React approach because it kind of uh, uh, avoids the coupling that exists between the state and the updates. Like you, you basically re-render the, the whole approach of re-rendering everything on any change makes the system potentially or often less performant or less opti- optimized in terms of performance, but simpler to grasp in terms of state cha- transitions. I, I'm not sure I agree with that. So, so there is definitely a set of rules that you have to follow with set, the signals. So the, the way I would state it is that if you don't use signals, you use the React model, there are fewer places where you will be surprised in terms of like you lose reactivity, right? Because if you basically re-render the whole world all the time, then it's really hard to do something where the React will not notice because it's rerunning the whole world anyways, and so it will notice, right? So I think the, the trade-off you have is that when you go with signals, there are a new set of rules that you have to follow. Just like if you use the use methods, use hooks, right? There are certain rules that you have to understand as a developer. Like you can't just put the use hooks anywhere. There's a specific order. You can't put them in the loops. They can't have any statements, right? These are a set of rules that you learn as a developer and you know to follow them. And so signals also comes with these set of rules. And if you don't follow them, bad things will happen. And so I think the way I would phrase it is that if you use signals, you are more constrained about the rules that you have to follow, right? And if you and so when you use something that doesn't use signals like React, you are more free. You can do more things and you can get away with more things, right? But the trade-off is if you're willing to be more constrained, and again, I'm going to argue that like these constraints are just like the use methods, the use hooks. After a while, you don't even think about it. It's so natural, right? But if you're willing to be more constrained, then as a, as a benefit, as a trade-off, you will get this performance benefit, right? And so... I think it's a it's a trade-off that's worth having because especially for humans, you know, we hate complexity, but after a while we internalize it so well that we don't even think about putting the use method behind an if statement, right? Or you know, inside of a for loop or et cetera. Like after a while, it just becomes second nature. We just don't even think about it. And so it's the same thing with signals. They're definitely more complicated. There's more rules. There's things you have to learn to use them. But once you do, it's just natural and you get all these benefits. So unless people object, I want to pull our our conversation while we still have some time to uh, a different direction, one that is slightly less technical or, or totally not technical, which but has to do a lot with the potential success of Quick. It seems to me that a big factor for the, success, for the current success of React was that at a certain point in time, they got all the uh, boot camps to teach React. That if you finish, if you go through a boot camp, there's a good chance that you know you learn some basic DOM, some basic JavaScript, just enough to know to learn React, and then they taught you React. And consequently, when you get to your next first job, React is what you know how to do. And also, employers, you know, may prefer React because they know they can get people who know React to work on their projects. How will you be able to? How how are you looking to, you know, circumvent to 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 like address this? Like, how, do you foresee boot camps teaching quick instead of React? How, how will you like elicit this transition? So I think uh, I think the thing that React got right is the simplicity of it, right? Um, 
I think, I don't know if it was intentional or not. I'm, I'm assuming it was. Uh, but like the, the the way JSX is written, the way, uh, uh, I mean, React has went through many iterations. They were class-based first, but now they're function-based, right? Um, the thing that I really value from the React side of things and JSX side of things is just how simple it is in terms of explaining. Like there is a set of rules and it's relatively easy to explain. And I think the reason why React kind of uh, won for, for, you know, over and why a lot of people end up in there, and, and again, boot camps as well, is because if it's a simple set of rules, then it's easy to explain, right? And it's easy, the, the ramp is very shallow in terms of what you ha- need to know in order to get uh, get going. Now, over time, the ramp gets, you know, not that it gets steeper, but like you get higher and higher because, you know, at some point you have to do styling and animation and lazy loading and suspense and things get complicated. And that's true for any framework. But the starting point is very shallow. And, you know, you basically just need a function with JSX and a render call and voila, you're off to go, right? And you can kind of build from there. And I think that's a really, really good property that I think AngularJS had that property, but then Angular lost it. We can go into the rabbit hole why (laughs) that is, but I think Angular lost it. And I think this is kind of what enabled React to kind of really take off and flourish is because they continually to have this really shallow, shallow ramp. And so in, in Quick, we really w- are focusing on this a lot. We want to make sure that the, the ramp, the starting thing is pretty, pretty shallow and you can easily get started and, and get going. Um, and so one of the things that the Quick is, if you look at it, is that it, it mimics React very closely. And this isn't an accident. That's both a consequence of the fact that React uh, Quick uses JSX, but also consequence of the fact that, like, hey, we think this is a better way of doing this. If this better way of doing this also requires that you have to change your complete tooling to everything, it's going to be a steep thing, right? But if you already know React, and really you just have to like learn a couple of new things, like you just have to learn signals and a dollar sign, and then you're good to go. And oh, by the way even if you don't really know how signals and dollar sign works, even if you know nothing about the set of rules, you'll probably be able to go pretty long time before you like do something to kind of fall off the cliff, so to speak. Right? So you can get away with a lot of things and very little knowledge. So I think Quick has the right property of being simple to kind of get started and, and many things just kind of happen uh, as, you, as you develop bigger and bigger applications. Interesting. I, I do have to say one thing about the about React simplicity or supposed simplicity. So I, I spoke at a recent uh, React Next conference. At, at the end of the conference, we had this sort of uh, uh, a, you know, question. The, the audience played a game where we, they got asked questions and you know the winner got a prize. Uh, and something like $500. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I contributed some of the questions to that uh, uh, contest. And one of the questions was, how many built-in hooks does React have? Not, you know, custom hooks or hooks introduced by third-party libraries, but ones actually built in to the core framework. Do you know? I'm going to guess around 15. You're absolutely correct. I was going to guess 11. Exactly 15. So how can React be super simple if it's got 15 built-in hooks? 
Well, yeah, like a few of them are for library authors. Yeah, a few honestly, of them. I think like seven of them are for library authors. Yeah, but least. but that means that eight are actually needed, and that's still a lot. Yeah, but like the thing is, like if you don't need, if you don't have a problem at hand that requires the specific hook, you don't need to know about that hook, right? So you can go a lot. Yeah, long, just use right? effect everything. Oh no, God no. <laughs> You're laughing, but like I'm sure a lot of people do. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will say that the mental model of that stuff. I, I mean, I I teach this a lot, and I have long videos on literally just use effect, and th- people don't get it. It's really hard, and it, I actually think that it was interesting. A lot of people actually prefer not a lot. I don't know, whatever. Some representative number still prefer classes because they just actually. For their, the mental model, I think it's just a little bit easier for them. When Ryan kind of pushed uh, Solid, one of the selling points was no use effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge foot gun. Uh, it's just lying out there. Right? You know, we started and quick. We, had, we started with use effect, but then over time, we decided to rename it, differentiate it, um, specifically because there's enough differences between it and there's enough foot guns that like, we wanted to kind of make it clear to the developers. Not the same thing. It's different. I know you're thinking the same thing, but it's not. What did it become? Well, there's use task and okay. use visible task and use resource and use uh, computed. But those are all different kind of use cases for the same kind of thing. It seems right. like it's more, but it's actually easier because like this is used for this category. Yeah, this absolutely. Is used for this category. Yeah, 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 for sure. That makes more sense, yeah. Alrighty, I'll jump in here. Uh, we're hitting about an hour, so we need to start wrapping up. Um, before we move on to picks, any uh, last things that we missed that you want to mention real quick, Mishko? <laughs> quick. <laughs> Sorry, I really didn't intend that pun. It just worked out. I'm, I, I'm just so good. I'm just so good at it that it comes naturally. You know what? Naturally. I don't even know how to spell the word quick anymore. <laughs> like when I write it outside of quick context, I'm like, did I spell it right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, being the child of the 70s and 80s, when I first hear that, I think of Nestle Quick and the rabbit and the whole, you know. But it's not spelled song. the same way, right? It's spelled differently. I, I think it's Q-W-I-K. Uh, I looked it up. But uh, no. yeah, that's that's how I remember it. So, anyway. I, I know I, in, in, I have like a quickie mart in no, it's my... it's Q-U-I-K. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, otherwise you would have had uh, like a, a trademark issue with Nestle. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Right. So... All righty. Well, thank you for uh, coming on again, Mishko. Thank you, Jack, for joining us as well. Glad to be here. Uh, with that, we'll move on to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about anything we want within reason, of course. doesn't have to be uh, tech-related. It can be anything, books, movies, food, you name it. So we'll start with AJ today. What do you got for us, AJ? Well, I've been playing Tears of the Kingdom. I spent about 20 hours over the weekend on the big Poe quest. Uh, I don't know. Is that the new Zelda game? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't know if that's good or bad. What system are you using for it, by the way? Switch, probably. What? Are you using a Switch? Well, yeah. Oh, okay. I think it's, it's the only thing you can use. Yeah, that's the only thing. You can. Uh, it's Nintendo, man. We're not PC gamers over here. <laughs> Zelda's not a PC game. Where have you been at? You're <laughs> too old, man. I'm not that, you gotta oh, give it time. Uh, let's put it this way. I don't know how many of I. I actually worked 
in the video gaming industry for a while. How many here can say that? Uh, that being said, I'm actually totally not a gamer. I don't know. I just don't enjoy it that much, to be honest. Yeah, I'm I'm not a gamer either. I only own Nintendo. So, <laughs> so I only own Nintendo me, and spend countless hours on it, but I'm not a gamer. It's look, it's it's <laughs> been a very long time since I've since I've sunk time into a game. So yes, I am a Zelda-er. When a Zelda comes out, I will probably sink some time into it. And Tears of the Kingdom, I don't know. It it's it's such an addicting game. I don't know if that makes it a great game. It, I really like it, but I'm also, it's been 10 years. I, I, I want, not, is it, has it been 10 years? I think it's been 10 years. I want a Triforce and iron boots and left-handed sword. I, <laughs> and, and a green tunic. I want, I, I'm hoping that the next game, I'm glad that they did Cures of the Kingdom, but I'm hoping that the next game is, got a story where you need to finish one thing in order to progress to the next to some degree. They broke the formula a little bit with Link Between Worlds where you could go to any of the seven dungeons in any order, but no matter which one you went to, there was something about having an item from one of the previous dungeons that would have helped you in that dungeon had you had it. And so there was still a little bit of... uh, I I don't know. But... I'm so Tears of the Kingdom is bittersweet for me. As excellent as it is, I I'm craving a traditional Zelda game with Triforce, Rescue the Princess, Boomerang, Left-Handed Sword, and uh, Iron Boots for good measure. But I'm glad that they made this the greatest hits. They've got the Poe Quest. They've got the, the Gleok. I don't know how you say it. The, the three-headed dragon that hasn't been in the game since the original game in the like 85 or 87 or whatever it was. So, but, but, uh, I, apparently they beat every record for game sales. They did something like 10 million sales in the first weekend. So it's the most that any game has ever sold ever. And it's, it's great, but it is, it's hard to pick a path. It's it's like they want you to be ADD, which I guess is great because because the generation of children raised on phones that's 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 all they know how to do. Um, no offense to everyone that I obviously just offended. So you basically you're saying that <laughs> there, there's the point in the game where uh, what's his name Link basically pulls out the mobile phone and starts walking around the world, <laughs> ignoring everything and just looking at his phone. That actually is part of the game. <laughs> I was going to say that's like Final Fantasy, but okay. All right, is that your pick, AJ? Is that what you got? Yeah, that's my... That's my, well, he's got, no, my he bittersweet pick. He doesn't have time for anything else. <laughs> that's what it sounds like, for sure. I can see your wife and your kids. Daddy, daddy! No, no, I'm sorry. I'm playing Zelda, man. I'll, I'll get to you later. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, your turn. What do you got for us? Uh, yeah, mine is not uh, that much fun, and it's less a pick than an unfortunate observation, statement of a situation. Uh, so uh, at the time of this recording, the Israeli government is starting to pass a set of laws that are going to transform us from, from a vibrant democracy 
into something that's starting to look more like a government, which is not a democracy and more starting to look like some sort of dictatorship. Maybe not quite yet, but not a democracy either. And the legitimate elected government into an illegitimate uh, regime. Uh, And as a result, tomorrow, with a lot of other Israelis, I'll be doing a lot of demonstrating in the streets. Uh, And hopefully we'll make it back home safely by the end of the day. Uh, We will see. And that's my unfortunate observation for today. Okay, so moving right along with that cheerful note, uh, I'll try to resurrect things with the uh, (laughs) the dad jokes of the week. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, I offer amazing dad jokes that I I receive accolades from all over the world. It's It's just truly amazing. Uh, so first of all, question, why didn't Han Solo, Star Wars for the uneducated, enjoy his steak dinner? <clears throat> it was chewy. Oh. That's, that's a gross. I know. Um, <laughs> second one, uh, this is more of a, a piece of advice. Uh, never use a double negative. They're a big no-no. <laughs> And finally, this is a story from when I was job interviewing a couple uh, uh, years ago. Uh, the interview says in, the guy who was interviewing me says to me, "Your resume says you take things too literally." And I said, "When the heck did my resume learn to talk?" Oh. All right. So those are the dad jokes of the week. Uh, Jack, your turn. What do you got for us for picks? Uh, my pick for the week is monkey type. It's a, a site that you can go to that will help you learn how to type faster and more reliably. And uh, I've been doing it for, I don't know, a mo- couple months. And it it slowly kind of builds you towards being a better typist. And I mean, I learned to type when I was <laughs> 12 or something like that. And it was just terrible. So it, I, I started to learn some better habits and become more reliable typist, which is certainly helpful when you're doing a lot of screencasts. Yeah, if there's one thing that I'm kind of annoyed with the school system, and it seems to be the case in the school systems of essentially almost every country, is that they don't teach touch typing. And I just don't understand why. It seems like such a useful skill to have. In my generation, they did, but they did it with Selectrics, which were insanely loud typewriters back in the day. And... I'm pretty sure that part of my my hearing loss is because of <laughs> a, a huge rooms full of selectric going bang, bang, bang every time that, you know, anybody type. Yeah, that was one class that I never took. It was an elective. Uh, and a, I wished I had because I've started to learn to type by necessity and it's not the prettiest thing. <laughs> Monkey type. All righty. And last but not least, Mishko. Well, I kind of already mentioned it, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, reading the book called Design of Everyday Things. Highly recommended. Uh, super interesting. Yeah, there is a whole section, a chapter about how doors are messed up, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. But it does kind of point correctly at the at the idea of like, uh, hey, like we should do a better job designing it. There's lots of constraints to consider. And the fact that when we design things that are not obvious to use and people kind of feel dumb because like I don't know how to use this particular device, it's not probably an issue with with you it's probably an issue with the device and how it was designed and i think there's a lot of learning and actually a lot of these learnings actually go to frameworks as well which is that you know 
you want to design systems so that the easy way of using it or the most obvious way of using it is the correct way of using it. And we're not there yet. I think we have a lot of improvements to do. I think it's excellent that somebody who's so involved in the frame, uh, framework world, on the frame, in the building of frameworks has this mentality. I, I think that, yeah. you know, we, we constantly strive, seems to be that we strive to make the, the developer experience easier and simpler. And certainly, you know, a lot of videos that Jack does show how quickly you can create really sophisticated things. But at the same time, it still it also shows that a lot of these things are still pretty comple- uh, complex and, and require a lot of knowledge in order to get right. Yeah, I think, you know, primary, you know, framework authors, sometimes they, that's their job all day long, every day, is to build this framework. And so they, li- they live in this kind of ethereal world, like, oh, functional programming and this and that. And, you know, when it comes to actual, like, boots on the ground, people building an e-commerce site, right, what does an effect mean? I, I what is that, you know, I, uh, what is that? And, and, and so that, you know, there's this kind of disconnect and it's, and, and you end up needing people to kind of teach teach and, and build that bridge between those things. And it would just be a whole lot easier if the framework authors were, were kind of in the world of actually using the, their frameworks kind of daily and and so they could just see that, that, that those are the issues and being in Discord and seeing people ask, like, what the heck is this? Well, I don't even understand. You know, because I'm like, God, I have, wow, I have a lot that I could teach some framework authors about like how these things are used. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when, when you talk about design, there's a couple things, you know, that, that sort of strike me. Uh, Mishko, you mentioned the book about everyday things. Uh, my wife was watching a, a news piece from CBS this morning, uh, the other day, I think it was last night that I happened to see it. And it was talking about how we design roadways and sidewalks in such a way that they prevent uh, pedestrian deaths mm. and automobile accidents. And, so, and there's so many little things that you don't think about when, you, you know, you see a road you know, the one example that stands out to me from uh, from this particular piece was like having space between the sidewalk and the street, right? So you have a little bit of a, a buffer, you know, if something, a car goes off the road or something like that. Little things like that, that, you know, you normally don't think about, but when you start looking at it, it's design. And I think the other thing of design that's always struck me, you know, as I mentioned that earlier is when you're designing, are you designing to fix an issue right now and address that issue right now? Or are you designing in such a way that you can do that and also think down the road, okay, is this design going to be a short-term fix? But if I was to design for ways that people might possibly use something, how am I going to design it? Is it going to be totally different? You know, One of the, the things that I think that uh, people don't appreciate that was designed in such a way that is certainly had very long-term use is the IP system, IP addresses. You know, that was designed, what, late 60s, early 70s? Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's still the way the internet is addressed, right? And we had to go from IP4 to IPv6 just because of uh, there's so much use of the system, but it's worked for so long. And it was fortunately designed in such a way that it was able to be somewhat future-proof, Right. And so for people that are designing and, and trying to think ahead, if you can get it right, hey, my hat's off to you <laughs> because that's got to be uh, very difficult to, to be able to do something that addresses a need, but also future proofs if we're down the road. So that's the end of my rambling and babbling. Uh, thank you 
again, Mishko and Jack for coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Happy to be here. And we will talk to you all next time on JavaScript Jabber. Bye.